0: Market Journal Television for Agricultural Business Decisions is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board.
1: Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Market Journal. I'm Brian Duskett. I hope you had an enjoyable Independence Day celebration. It's likely that this past week you heard the old phrase, knee-high by the 4th of July. That's an old adage, of course, used to measure the success of a corn crop by this point in the growing season. In the past, knee-high indicated high yields for the rest of the year. But today, knee-high stocks might be more of a problem, frankly, than a success story. There's a better phrase to use now. Stealing this line from the hit musical, Oklahoma, corn should be as high as the elephant's eye by the 4th of July. Maybe a phrase you can sneak in over the next week. Coming up on today's broadcast, we'll head out and into the field to check on crops up in Northeast Nebraska. We'll also discuss soybean cyst nematodes. That's a look at what's coming up, but first. You might recall that our team recently traveled out to the Pacific Northwest to visit Portland, Oregon and the Wheat Marketing Center. There we saw how products grown right here in the heartland are utilized and distributed to our trading partners both here and across the world. Our first story is centered around the wheat exports from the Port of Vancouver. Market Journal's Bill Dodd has this story.
2: About 100 miles up the Columbia River from the Pacific Ocean, the Port of Vancouver, USA is a premier shipping gateway for the United States and Canada, this port brings together a unique combination of location, experienced labor, and specialized equipment to move everything from steel and aluminum to wind turbines and of course grain. This facility is responsible for shipping up to 6 million metric tons of grains and oil seeds to destinations around the globe. One company involved in a great deal of grain exporting from this terminal is United Grain. Uh,
3: United Grain Corporation is one of the premier um, grain exporters here in the Pacific Northwest. We, we strive to, be, to provide premier service to uh, our customers, our suppliers, um, everybody that we work with. We do so by being one of the most reliable companies here to work with. That includes logistics, uh, pricing, information, just anything that we can do to kind of separate us from the rest and just give that premier service. Uh, we hold 8 million bushels here, but uh, we strive, you know, to do minimum 18 million bushels out of our uh, export spout onto the vessels. So um, we're not storing grain here. We are just, we're, you know, buying from uh, our suppliers who, who originate from the growers directly, um, trying to give them the best market insight, um, giving them the best prices possible, and also meeting the needs of our overseas customers as well. Some of our biggest <laughs> buyers are in the Philippines, of course, Japan. Thailand, we do a little bit of business in South America. Can't forget China. China has been um, a big boost in uh, our demand as well.
2: Harvest can be one of the busiest times of year for farmers here in the heartland. So it stands to reason, while farmers are laboring in the fields for their yields, the good folks at United Grain are prepping to receive, store and ship any commodities that will eventually find their way to the Pacific Northwest and the port of Vancouver, USA.
3: There are, um, the the way the structure works, you know, based on harvest really. When the wheat comes out of the fields in August, September, it's a lot of wheat coming out of the fields and we gotta have homes for it. So our price structure um, shows as such. Our prices get cheaper, August, September, we need to sell boats to keep the grain fluid. Uh, Same thing, October, November, when the soybeans and corn come uh, off the fields, we need to have homes to support the supply coming out of the fields. Typically, April, May, June, the buyers know it's gonna get cheaper for new crop harvest, and that's usually our slowest time.
2: Crops such as corn, soybeans, and wheat are primarily transported via rail system directly to United Grain. From there, the rail cars are emptied, the grain's stored and reloaded onto a maritime vessel for export. Given the tight schedule our rail system runs on, once a train arrives, the unloading process happens with impressive speed and attention to detail.
3: We handle all the wheat varieties, white wheat, winter wheat, spring wheat, uh, corn, soybeans, we've handled canola, Um, I know in the past we've handled barley. Uh, Well, the railroad, they give us incentives to unload that as quick as possible, Uh, 10 hours is what they want us to unload it in to reach our incentive, and we can usually unload a 110, 120 car shuttle uh, in about 8 hours. Uh, the vessels also kind of depends. When we're shipping 60,000 tons of one commodity, we can get a vessel done in about 48 hours. Um, where, we, where we kind of, again, separate ourselves from the rest, we, uh, we have we have over 300 bins here at United Grain, so we're able to segregate, and we're able to load four or five different commodities on one ship, and that might take a little bit more time to get that done.
2: When it comes to the work being done at United Grain, A core belief among the employees there is that everyone from the farmers in the field to the workers on the dock, the customers receiving commodities shipped should benefit from the work being done on this port.
3: Just that United Grain, I mean, I truly am behind, you know, some of our core values here where we just strive to provide the best service. To everybody that we work with. When I was training, I remember my boss once told me, you know, if we're not all making money, then there's no point in doing it. So I really take that into account and just try to make sure that everybody from supply to uh, the people we work with all the way to our overseas buyers is, is happy and content.
1: Now, if you'd like additional information on how United Grain, their work impacts our wheat producers here in the Midwest, you can visit their website. It is unitedgrain.com. While well, wheat obviously plays a pretty important role when it comes to the day-to-day products that we consume all across the United States. One Portland bakery uses vast quantities of egg products including wheat on a daily basis. While we're, while we're visiting the Pacific Northwest, we got a tour of the Portland staple that's called Marcy's Bakery.
2: With facilities located in Portland, Oregon and Kent, Washington, Marcy Baking is a family-owned wholesale bakery serving the Pacific Northwest. Established in 1993, Marcy Baking quickly earned a reputation for creating the most premium, high quality desserts and breads Portland has to offer. Daniel Bess, general manager for Marcy Baking, showed our group around the Portland facility. During our time there, it was easy to see that Daniel and his team share a passion and enthusiasm for the work they do and the products they create here on a daily basis.
4: Uh, The bakery is a family-owned bakery. It's been in business for over 20 years we are in the cake section of the bakery where we make cakes try to have the section far away from the oven so we don't have any heat so we can always stay nice and cool and that's what we do in that section is you know mostly cake pastries french pastries and as we go farther away from you know, from here then you have cookies you have bread and the oven way at the end of the building over there where we bake everything fresh every day we make product and we are all working together. We are very happy and we care about what we do all the time. So quality product is important and also how it's made. Uh, we want to make sure that everything is done correctly. And of course to me, hopefully everything we do here is going to end up somewhere and some place, somewhere. And that's going to give them a smile when they eat the product.
2: During our time in the Pacific Northwest with the Nebraska Wheat Board, we spent a good deal of time at the Wheat Marketing Center. It was there that our group learned that the quality of wheat set for export is of great importance to our overseas buyers. That feeling is mutual for the good folks here at Marcy Baking. Just glancing around the facility, it became clear very quickly that this family-owned baking business on the West Coast was very reliant on commodities like wheat and sugar beets that are produced by hard-working farming families here in the Midwest.
4: Everything is made fresh every day, and we send some product to some restaurants, some coffee shops, some... Uh, uh hospital, catering business. So pretty much you name it. We have product everywhere from here to Eugene. Yeah, I think the people like our product. They like our service as well. And the quality of the products is very simple. We use very basic ingredients. A lot of butter, eggs, sugar. Sugar, we use cane sugar and some beet sugars. That's are the two primary sugars that we use here. Mostly beet sugar, that's what we use the most. Flour and pastry flour for other cakes and cookies. Then we need to go into the bread flour. So we have several type of flour, we have whole wheat flour, white flour, uh, rye flour. So depending on the bread we're making, we use different flour all the time. Uh, So the quality is there and people recognize that.
2: When it comes to creating these classic culinary confections, this bakery goes through enough flour and sugar in one day to make your head spin. That's one reason Danielle is always so happy when he gets to meet agricultural producers that play an important role in his livelihood.
4: Uh, we use an a uh, weekly base close to eight pallets. Uh, one pallet is 2500 pounds, so you know with the math. It's a lot of flour. We use about a thousand pound of eggs per week, a thousand pound of butter per week. So we use a lot of product again fresh. Yeah, I think it's awesome to work with farmers. Uh, I'm hoping that someday I have the time to go see to the farm to see where the wheat comes from. Actually, which would be great. Uh, like yesterday, we had a tour, and one of the farmers recognized that the sugar we use here, the bee sugar, that comes from their farm. They were very excited and very happy. I think it's great when we can tie together where the product comes from, what we do with it, and where it's going to end up. I think it's a great thing when we can all tie those three together. Now, if watching that does not
1: make you hungry, I'm not sure what will. Pretty neat experience to be able to tour that bakery while in Portland. Back here in Nebraska, there is a research facility not far from the capital city, which has a rich history. Rogers Memorial Farm is a no-till research facility that grows corn, soybeans, sorghum, and wheat. We look at now how that farm is helping to propel agricultural research at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Once again, here's Market Journal's Bill Dodd.
2: Just a few miles east of Lincoln, Nebraska, stands a farm with an inconspicuous old white barn on about 320 acres of land with a diverse crop selection. This farm is staffed with only one full-time position. Stuart Hoff serves as the research farm manager here. While this site is a testament to the benefits of no-till farming, Stuart tells us it's evolved a great deal since his initial experience on the property, thanks in part to much of the work of his colleague, Paul Yossett.
5: Uh, Originally, I was a student in mid-1980s under Mark Schroeder, the farm manager at that time. Uh, At that time, the farm was mostly a tillage farm, Um, did mostly corn, some corn, uh, soybeans was the majority, and wheat was the majority of the crops at the farm at that time. Then in the 1990s, early 1990s, I became full-time for the department at that time, and uh, Mark Schroeder uh, moved the farm into a no, full no-till after seeing what was done with the uh, plots that uh, uh, Albert Dickey and Paul Yassa were doing, and he also incorporated that into the other ground that the department had at the ENAREC facility up at Meade. Paul Yassa,
2: who was recently recognized for his contributions to no-till farming, has spent several years at Rogers Memorial Farm. He tells us while his work here has enhanced his extension education programs for farmers around the state, The farm has also been utilized by groups such as NRCS and the Ag Research Service.
6: Well, at the Rogers Memorial Farm, I've been working there for a large number of years. And it's sort of a trial proving ground for me and it actually adds a lot to my extension programs. Because when I go out and talk to producers, then I've actually been doing it in the field myself. And that's one of the beauties of the farm. It's allowed me to try a lot of things to take out to producers. Well, when it comes to Rogers Memorial Farm being a host to other groups coming out, ARS, uh, the Ag Research Service, had a set of plots out there that uh, they ran for 40 years, comparing uh, different tillage systems for corn and soybean production. And uh, it's the kind of thing where they were taking some in-depth measurements in the field, uh, in the soil itself, the kind of thing that an extension engineer doesn't do. And so again, it added a lot to the database on tillage systems. Now, NRCS, uh, we're twofold there. One is they've used us as a training site. We've conducted the national training for uh, all the NRCS new employees, 2016 until COVID shut us down in 2020. But uh, every new employee came in for a three week class in Lincoln and spent about five days or parts of five days out at the farm where they could actually see the practices we are using to actually see how soils improve.
2: Since its inception, Rogers Memorial Farm has evolved into a self-sustaining triumph of no-till farming practices. Planting and harvesting on the property are generally overseen by Stuart and Paul. The profits from commodity sales generated by the crops raised by Paul and Stewart are the main source of revenue that keep this operation
5: running. Uh, we raise soybeans, corn, sorghum, and uh, wheat, winter wheat on the farm. We don't have a lot of storage. We can store about 12,000 bushels on the farm. So I'm contracting some soybeans off the farm before we harvest. So I got room to put the, all the remaining soybeans in the bin for later sales. Um, I maneuver things around so corn goes in another bin. Uh, for year, last 10 years up until last year I was raising white corn because it was a, had a market premium over yellow then the markets flipped. So I moved over and produced less corn mostly for plot areas and put in more sorghum because i kind of seen the drought coming so I thought this would be a good opportunity to push uh, push more of that on the farm again so.
2: This forward-thinking operation truly is a realistic setting for the future of agriculture, which is trending towards smaller operations globally. As the Rogers Memorial Farm operation looks to future partnerships and more robotic innovations hitting their fields, Paul and Stewart are certain that this research facility will continue to lead local and national farming practices well into the future.
1: Alright, thanks for that story, Bill. If you'd like to learn more about the history and research taking place at Rogers Memorial Farm, we've added an informative article along with the story. You can read that on the Market Journal website. Traveling at 15 miles per hour through a field is, a, is some new sprayer technology that has the ability to detect weeds and only apply chemical when spotted. GreenEye Technology is testing their product on a farm near Wilcox, Nebraska, which could control weeds easier and quite a bit cheaper. Now, what's different about GreenEye's technology is that they've developed a system that can be retrofitted onto your sprayer. You can learn more about this type of system in the July issue of The Nebraska Farmer. Up next, we head out and into the field for this update on the growing season. We turn now to my colleague from the Rural Radio Network. Here's Chad
7: Moyer. For this week's In the Field update, we travel to northeast Nebraska,
8: where we catch up with Jeff Baker, who farms between Pender and Walt Hill. It's been sunny and hot, and sometimes it rains a little bit, which I think is a pretty common issue around here. Uh, It's spotty. For the most part, I can't complain about how anything looks. I mean, we've, we've been dry, we've been hot. To this point though it's been all right and things look decent now emergence on most everything was I won't say perfect but it was it was good this year working with dry soil makes things a little easier that way obviously. Um, kind of where we're sitting right now I guess.
7: Yep so uh, if you can in the last two months uh, you know from planting until now how much rain have you had and um, is it is it rain that you think did really good did you think that it all soaked in came slow enough that it uh, is doing the crop good?
8: For the most part yeah we're dry enough anything soaks into a certain degree right now I know there have been spots around that have got the real heavy real fast we had one early one that we got probably an inch in 10 minutes or something like that. But we haven't had any of the big out of control hail winds, stuff like that. So no, it's been, everything's soaked in. It's all been helpful. It's been spread out enough that I'd call it almost timely to this. I mean, when everybody's starting to get nervous and we really need something, it seems like within a week or so of that, it kind of shows up. So. We don't have an excess by any means, but no, the stuff we've had has been very helpful, I think.
7: You told us before you're completely a dry land farmer. Yes. So when we have a year like this where it's where it's dry, how about the fertility program? Is there a, a way to change it? Should you, do you think you should change it uh, in, in a year like this?
8: That's a lot of good question there. Uh, as a dry land guy, you just wish you had a pivot on a year like this, but beyond that, um, Fertility for me in 20-inch rows, I don't like going back out there a lot, especially in corn, because there's no good way to not run everything over. So I'm I'm kind of front-loaded that way fertility-wise, so there's not a ton that I change. Um, in the past, I have side-dressed, I have top-dressed. Like I said, with the amount that I run over, I never did see a big enough yield benefit or a boost to where it really made sense for me and like I said without knocking everything over I kind of prefer to stay out if I can obviously. Um, I've I've been told by a lot of guys well you want that side dress so you can kind of decide you know if you want to put more or less when you go back out there nitrogen wise. If somebody can tell me the first week of June or second week of June what my corn's gonna yield at the end of the year, I will happily go side dress and pick a number at that point. But I'm, I'm kind of overly optimistic, so I want it out there because I'd like to think I'm going to grow a good crop every year. So that's I, I don't change a whole lot as mid-season goes anyway.
7: I guess the one thing I didn't ask you about was insects. Have you seen, has there been any insects that have blown in or anything that you've noticed yet? I know we're still kind of mid-season. As but. As,
8: as of now, no. Everything's pretty clean that way. Um, the, the corn, depending what we see here in the next week, it may very well have an insecticide go in with that fungicide shot. The beans so far have been actually really clean insect-wise. So it, it's... Been kind of nice. Haven't, haven't had to worry about things chewing on anything yet anyway. Yep.
7: Again, visiting with Jeff Baker. He farms in northeast Nebraska between Pender and Walled Hill. And that's this week's In the Field update on Market Journal.
1: Alright, good stuff there, Chad. Do appreciate that update and for Jeff's optimism as well. I've heard it been said that farmers are the eternal optimists and especially this growing season. That is an accurate statement. Finally today, soybean gallmage has once once again been detected in fields across the Midwest. To learn more about it, we take you back to a conversation we had with UNL cropping system specialist Justin McMekin. Today on Crop Talk, we're talking about soybean gallmage. Justin McMekin, cropping protection and cropping system specialist, joins us. Justin, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Let's talk about this. It's a a bit of a pain for soybean growers, not just in Nebraska, but across the Midwest. Size things up, how did things look this past year?
9: Yeah, it, you know, since this insect uh, was discovered in 2019, it's been around for a couple years, this is probably one of the lighter years we've had, which is great news for growers, and I'm I'm certainly happy for them. Uh, unfortunately, soybean gallblins isn't gone. Uh, we're looking at about 77% of our previously identified counties as those soybean fields being infested by random survey uh, from a, a project funded by the Nebraska Soybean Board. Uh, and in some of those counties, we're getting a lot of pressure uh, still. And so it's a random sample. We, we've heard from a lot of growers post-season uh, that they're certainly under a lot of pressure and still looking for answers uh, to soybean gallblings. So it's down a little bit, but it's, it's out there and causing problems. Any particular reason why it was down a little bit this year? Could you track that? Oh man, it's, it's the, the long, you know, it'll take us a while to figure those <laughs> kinds of things out. Obviously, environment's one of those factors that, that would play into this, but uh, what specifically is leading to its uh, you know temporal decline, uh, unknown. I, I guarantee you, it's not gone. Uh, like uh, our, our issues with uh, raspberry cane midge in Denmark, Poland area. That, that's that's a hundred years that pest has been around. It fluctuated up and down over its time, um, and so conditions line up again. It'll be back uh, in the system.
1: I suppose we should rewind a little bit for producers who are dealing with this. They know it's you know what it looks like and some things uh whether I was scouting. But for somebody who's not familiar. What does soybean gallmage uh, impact look
9: like? Yeah, uh, you know, most who first identified as an issue, uh, at least back in 19, saw a lot of dead plants along the edge of their field. Uh, and they may have initially thought, oh, this is Phytophthora or something else. A closer inspection of those plants, uh, especially in plants that are still living along that edge, uh, shows we've got some dark discolorations at the base of the plant. And peeling a bit of that tissue off, you find these orange larvae, and that's pretty diagnostic of soybean gallmage. Uh, it comes from adjacent fields, so there's a soybean field usually adjacent the previous year, uh, but it it essentially gets in, cuts off the circulation of that plant, meaning the water and nutrients it can it transport and cause the plant to die, and that can happen really fast, 21 days after first adult activity, um, and all of our research sites that that was pretty typical this past year. Yeah,
1: spent some time at the combine this year. It's nasty when you see it. Particularly, we had fields next to corn, and when you saw it, it was it was prevalent there. That's for sure. Yeah. Yep. Let's talk about 2023. Anything you're looking ahead to and worried about as we uh, kind of gear up for the next planting season?
9: Yeah, I'm always nervous for what soybean gall midge is gonna do each year um, as it emerges the following spring. And certainly we left the the season with some pretty significant larval populations. Um, so, you know, the, the anticipation is uh, that we'll see it again. Um, what, how, how bad it's gonna be in that particular system depends on what type of environment we see in the spring. and. Obviously growers are shifting a lot of varieties, and I think that was the initial kind of outbreak was, was some pretty susceptible varieties, and there's work going on in that space too. Uh, but it's a crystal ball uh, to, to know what will happen this coming season. As we're going through the season, are there particular things that
1: producers should be looking for to know if this is impacting their fields?
9: Yeah, so the, the first thing, uh, if a grower is at all concerned or, or identifies that their counties have soybean gulmage in it through soybeangulmage.org, the website where we host a lot of that information, is to join that alert network. And that puts them in contact uh, with some information that's pretty useful for when and where to scout. Um, so there's a good six hours of videos on there on soybean gallmage, which is a lot of information, but uh, the key thing will be after that emergence occurs, starting that scouting. For those that don't know they have it, late July uh, or mid-July even is a good time to look for this insect, and there's, there's a lot of key features in the landscape that are useful for finding it when it's in a lower population, dense vegetation, along field borders, and then we have some other hosts like sweet clover uh, that, that's pretty important to look for those to know if it's in the area.
1: Okay, so we've got six hours of video. People can go watch on one of these uh, snowy days during the winter. Sure. You also have an upcoming uh, kind of educational webinar, I'll call it. That's on the 27th of February. Uh, what's going on there?
9: Yeah, it's it's the continuation of those six hours that we've put together. So we've, we've held this twice uh, with, with good participation, about 400 people attending across a lot of different states, even outside of where soybean gall is found. And what we're providing them is an update on what we've learned on soybean gall So we've... We think we've done enough to talk about the biology and ecology, and we'll do some research updates on that that's important to management, Uh, but we'll be focusing on what we specifically learned this past season relevant to what might be coming the next season. And There are a lot of tactics that are frustrating for growers, but I think understanding what we're seeing from those, even though they're frustrating, is useful uh, to making a management plan for something that we don't know a lot about yet somebody wants to join those 400 others that are attending those, what's the website
1: to do so and get registered?
9: Yeah, soybeengallmudge.org. You click on that website, one of the first things you're gonna see is click here to register for the event. Uh, we're putting together our speaker list, which is, a, is basically everybody's working in Soybean Gallmage with within the land-grant university. So uh, we have Nebraska, myself, uh, Tom Hunt and Bob Wright, and then in Iowa, Aaron Hodgson's Bruce Potter, Bob Cook in Minnesota, and Adam Horst in South Dakota, and that really encompasses the region where we have a lot of issues. Uh, so people may hear from me throughout the season, uh, but hearing from those individuals directly would be really important. There's also question and answer periods in there where they can ask things maybe we're not thinking of. Um, so it's a good good event to attend if you have any concerns or or have a problem with soybean gallmich. Justin, final word is yours. What else do you want to add on soybean gallmich? Join that event. That's gonna be the way for people to keep you up to date and, and sign up for that network if you have any concerns. That's the way for us to push information.
1: Appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. Now there's an upcoming event in July where you can learn more about soybean gallmage. A team of extension entomologists will be on hand at the Soybean Gallmage Regional Field Day, which is coming up July 25th at the Research Center near Mead. Details on that event can be found on the CropWatch website. That is about all the time we have for this week's broadcast, but did you know that corn is used in fireworks? That's right, if it wasn't for corn, well fireworks would be a bit more unsafe. Fireworks need binders to burn properly, and corn is used in one of the most common binders, which is called dextrin. So now you know that corn helped make celebrations possible this past week. Thank you for joining us here on Market Journal. Until next time, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive
0: week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.